Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The prison guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome back to the podcast. I hope you liked that last episode where I told that uh, story about the Tom T. Hall show. And I, I didn't really talk about who Tom T. Hall is or was. And um, I figured, you know, you can Google Tom T. Hall if you're not familiar with him. He's one of those people sort of, you know, in in some ways contributed to the bluegrass scene, but really was not a bluegrass player. Great songwriter. Anyway, the I was thinking about that episode, and I may have been mistaken when I gave the impression, well, I flat out stated that it was just Pony Express and Tom T. Hall. That's how I remember it. But after listening back to that episode, I got to thinking, I don't know, for some reason, I just think maybe there was another band who played later. Some kind of a local country band. I I don't remember. (laughs) It really does get hard to remember all this stuff after all those years. But anyway, it's possible that, uh, Maybe the show did go on into the evening. I don't remember. But the more I think about it, the more I think it did, but we left. And and I do recall Tom T. Hall leaving. Anyway, so in case you happen to be there at that show, you might remember something slightly different. Anyway, what I want to get into in this episode is one of, um, one of my favorite subjects that I have... Um, stored away little stories and recollections of you might call it one of my hobbies and that is the destruction of fine instruments because over the years i have witnessed the the uh demolishing of quite a few good instruments and some near misses and close calls and i think it's just a fascinating subject i don't know why i'm so amused by this but I'm often reminded of how easily instruments can be broken when I'll go to a jam session or a gig or something. And you see this all the time. People just, it's almost like they have a death wish for their own instrument, you know, going to get up and go refill their mug or something. And they take this pretty nice guitar and balance it precariously on, you know, like on top of a bar stool or, They just lay it in a position where it's literally begging to be knocked to the floor. And I've seen this so many times. But anyway, I'm going to recount some of those tales, some of the better tales in my collection today in this podcast. And by the way, for you mandolin players, uh, this collection of tales comes basically from my book, called the mandolin handbook and the mandolin handbook for you mandolin players. And this is my one little commercial here is an 80 page ebook. It used to be a print book. You used to be able to buy it at elderly and some other places, but, uh, I cut the price and turned it into an ebook and you can buy it directly from me. Now it's called the mandolin handbook, an owner's manual for the mandolin. And, you know, you think about it, you buy a car. My wife recently got a a new car and in the glove box 
was the manual, you know, 200 pages of instructions on how to operate this thing. Most people never read the darn thing. They, they probably should. Of course, the first half is filled up with safety warnings and, you know, how to install car seat, baby seats in the back seat and, you know, all this, all this lawyer stuff. But you get down there and it will tell you like what the air pressure is supposed to be in the tires. That's a good thing to know where the jack is stored. How many people have had a car for four years, suddenly have a flat and have no idea where the jack and the tire tool, they don't even, you know, they never practiced it. My dad was one of those guys that before you could get your driver's license, he, he made you demonstrate that you knew how to change your own tire. You know, that, that guy was, uh, grew up in the middle of the depression and, you know, you had to demonstrate to him that you knew how to fix things. Anyway, I'm kind of getting off track here, but the mandolin handbook is the owner's manual that they never gave you. If you bought a mandolin or any instrument, you might get a little small brochure. You might get some warranty information or something, but you don't get a full instruction manual of how to take care of this thing, how to adjust it, how to set it up so that it sounds good and all the accessories that can be used with it and all that. It just doesn't doesn't exist. So I sat down and I wrote the missing owner's manual for the mandolin. Now, I will tell you there are plenty of places on the internet that if you're interested in setting up your mandolin, you can Google that and just be get all of the free information that you can stand. You can get, you know, Information put up by the manufacturers of the instruments, that's always a good source. And there are a lot of very um, competent luthiers. And we talked about this some in the uh, Todd Lindeberg episode when we were talking about luthiers and repairs and stuff. And he gave some sources. There's a lot of good information out there. But what's different about the Mandolin Handbook is... I give you all that information, and when I wrote it, I had been playing probably 30, 35 years. And so, not only do I just give you the technical about how to, you know, set your intonation and things like that, but I also filled it up with stories and tales and, you know, weird stuff that might help you understand why, um, why we do the things we do with our instruments. So I just filled it up. I, I wrote it for myself more. I wanted to have fun writing it. And I figured if I had fun writing it, you would have fun reading it. Now it contains all that technical stuff, uh, but it also tells a lot of strange stories. And, you know, I personalize the information you might say, and you're not going to get that from a guy who, you know, just writes a very dry, almost scientific method on, you know, how to uh, adjust the strings at the nut or something, you know, you're not going to get this kind of stuff. Well, what, what I'm going to tell you about today is I'm using that book as my notes for this episode. And this, this, what I'm going to talk to you about, I'm going to put in my, I'm going to expand on what I said in the book. And this begins on page 62 of the Mandolin Handbook, which, by the way, I'll put a link to the Mandolin Handbook in the show notes page if you want to grab your own copy. 
Uh, on page 62, I begin to tell stories and the heading at the top of the pages at the top of that page is called cases, instrument stands and horror stories. And I start going through, basically I'm trying to convince people a, to take care of their instrument. Don't let it get destroyed. And then I talk about, um, you know, different types of cases and so on. Like I, I discuss the variety of cases and the price ranges and all that kind of stuff. And I start with the gig bag. Everybody knows what a gig bag is. That is the lowest priced instrument protection device. And I'm making air quotes around protection. It does keep dust off. And I suppose if it fell over on a, on a soft surface, maybe a carpeted floor with some pillows scattered around it, you know, your instrument would probably survive, but I'm also going to put a picture on the show notes for this episode of a friend of mine's mandolin. And I like this mandolin a lot. I was teaching this guy mandolin lessons and I had bought a spare mandolin. It was a, an Eastman 850, 815. I'm sorry. Eastman 815. Pretty nice mandolin. It, I didn't love it like I love my flat iron, but from time to time I would need to put my flat iron in the shop and I needed a second F style that I sort of liked. And I, I kept trying different things and I found this thing and I owned this Eastman 815. Had a really powerful chop. It was a little brighter than, well, it was a lot brighter than my old flat iron, but it was good enough for that purpose. I could play it, you know, for two or three weeks while I had my flat iron refretted. So I had this thing and I had this student, I won't mention his name, and he was just drooling over this thing. And after several, I don't know, might've been a couple of months, I finally uh, sold it to him. So I sold him the Eastman 815 and he, that was a major step up from what he was playing. So he had the Eastman was playing and running around Atlanta, jamming and, you know, trying to start a band and doing all this stuff. And, uh, I only laugh because it didn't happen to me. He was riding his bicycle uh, through Little Five Points or East Atlanta or something. And that mandolin, the Eastman 815 that I sold him, I sold it to him with a hard shell case. But being a cool kid, you know, it was just not comfortable to ride around on your bicycle with a hard shell case slung on the back. So he went and bought a gig bag. And he carried his mandolin around in a gig bag and he was riding his bicycle and he crashed his bike and the handlebar uh, punched a nice hole right through the front of that mandolin. <laughs> Just bashed it. And you can see a picture of that mandolin because he brought it to me, you know, with tears in his eyes. <laughs> Did I think there was any way I could fix it. And I've studied on that thing for a long time, and I, I might one day fix it. Anyway, he moved on to another mandolin. I think he got a Gibson F9 or something. I don't know what he got. But anyway, just remember that a gig bag is padded a little bit, and it does provide some temperature insulation. Although, I don't know why they always make them black. I mean, you want to heat something up, make it black. Why don't they make these bags white, you know? Oh, well, they don't ask me when they're designing this stuff. 
my son recently got a flute off Amazon, and it, of course it came in a little zipper type, kind of like a gig bag um, type case, black of course. And if you leave that in the hot car with the sun shining on it, I'm sure all the pads are going to come loose. And anyway, I digress. Anyway, my friend Bob McIsaac, who I played in Cedar Hill with for 27 and a half years, he's the guitar player. He's also a professional luthier. And he used to call gig bags the luthier's best friend. <laughs> because, uh, you know, you use a gig bag and it brings more business to people in the repair trade. So just use gig bags with caution. Anyway, I go through a couple of pages in my mandolin handbook about, you know, gig bags, chipboard cases, foam cases, plywood cases, all this stuff. Give you a little bit of information about them. But in this section, I tell some horror stories because I just love a good horror story. And um, I'll start with this one. And, and I meant to bring this up in my interview with Bob Putnam. I love Bob Putnam. He's one of my best friends. But um, Bob um, had a little instrument story one time. He, his lovely wife bought him his dream guitar. I don't know what the occasion was, his birthday or an anniversary. Bob wanted a Martin. And his wife bought him a, a Martin HD 28. Brand new, gorgeous, sounded really good. And we were playing at this barbecue cook-off in Jonesboro, Georgia. And they had uh, several bands were playing at, at different, uh, like, barbecue booths around. The, I don't know. It was the smokiest gig, as you can imagine. Uh, the only gig that was smokier was one time our band played down at um, Atlanta Motor Speedway on the night before the race. That was a smoky place. Every campsite in that place had a had a smoker going we had to try to sing amongst all that but anyway here we are at this barbecue cook-off of course we got to try the barbecue and i just remember poor old bob putnam he took that brand new hd 28 and he kind of had it slung around on his back like johnny cash you know where the end pin is up by your right shoulder and the neck is pointing down to your left and your guitar is on your back and he's eating a plate of barbecue and that strap popped off the end pin and the guitar you know went straight down hit the ground peg head first in that hard red georgia clay bam and just fell over in the dirt luckily it did not break because it, it only dropped probably 18 inches you know got a little dusty and scratched up but i think you know might have taught bob a lesson don't Trust your end pin and don't trust your strap. Never, ever, ever trust a strap. That's one of my life philosophies. Because a strap is there to assist. You shouldn't rely on a strap. Okay, enough about that. Let me tell you about this, this other incident. There was a, and I'm not going to mention his name. Because what I witnessed was, well, it wasn't really stupid. It was an accident. You know, I played in a couple of organized bands, but I also knocked around town playing as, uh, you know, in pickup groups. Somebody needed a mandolin player. Somebody needed a bass player. Somebody needed a banjo player. This kind of thing. 
Well, this particular night, this is probably in the 90s, mid-90s, late 90s. And uh, these guys, I don't even remember who all was playing that night. We were playing at a place called Jake's Roadhouse in Decatur, Georgia. I think later it became known as Jake's Toad House. Anyway, little joint over there in Decatur. And we were playing bluegrass in there. And we had a fiddle player that night. And this fiddle player, who I will not mention his name, um, I like the guy, by the way. I just don't want to embarrass him unduly. Um, he was playing the fiddle, and when we took our first break, he he his case was open at the back of the stage, and instead of putting his fiddle in the case, he he leaned the fiddle against the back wall, just kind of stood it straight up and leaned it up there and leaned his bow up there. Very nicely balanced there. And it was pretty safe because, you know, the stage was eight feet from front to back. And, you know, there wasn't anybody going to... It seemed pretty safe. And I was sitting at the, at a side table just, you know, killing time during the break. And people were coming up to the front of the stage. And some of the band members were talking to people and, you know, that sort of thing. Anyway, as this conversation, I, wa I just watched this guy and almost in slow motion. He was stepping backwards. And, uh, he kept stepping backwards and backwards until the heel of one of his feet just was poised right above the tailpiece of that fiddle. And he stepped backwards and just stepped on his own fiddle and just folded it in half. Just went crunch, folded the fiddle in half. And it all happened. I just watched it happen. I didn't think it was going to happen. If I thought it was going to happen, I would have jumped up and went, Hey, don't stop. But I, I just saw him backing up, backing up crunch. It was a nice fiddle. You know, all I'll say about that is, uh, well, don't do that. Don't step on your own fiddle. Luckily the guy had two fiddles with him that night and he played a different one. Anyway, don't step on your fiddle. And, uh, you know, on break, put the thing in the case, close the lid, snap it, put it somewhere safe. Okay. Or you may step on your own fiddle. Now I'll tell you another little story. Uh, Cedar Hill was opening for Doc Watson. Uh, this is probably about, I don't know, 1987 at center. No, it wasn't center stage. It was at the variety playhouse in little five points in Atlanta. Cedar Hill opening for Doc Watson. So we do the sound check. We come in there, um, do our sound check, then hang around. Doc does his sound check, and we're just hanging around. So they've all the sound checking has been done. We're hanging around. We're going to go eat with Doc and then come back and do the show. So we're kind of waiting on them to, you know, come out so we can go eat. And so we're sitting in the front row. There's nobody in the place. There's two or three of us sitting in the front row, just watching the stage. And this uh, stage lighting technician guy comes out there with this really tall stepladder. It's the biggest stepladder I think I've ever seen where not like an extension ladder where you, you know, you, it's a single ladder, but this thing is a double ladder, just like your typical, you know, little 
six or seven foot or eight foot ladder. But this Joker was tall. It was tall enough that he could pull this ladder out and climb way up there and point lights in different directions. So he wheels this ladder out on stage and sitting there are a couple of chairs, a couple of guitars, Doc's guitar is sitting there and I think probably a bass amp. You know, it was a very minimalistic stage setup for a Doc Watson show. But there's Doc's guitar on a stand and this guy wheels this um, really tall ladder out there right next to Doc's guitar. And climbs to the top. And he's a big old guy. This dude weighs 300 pounds at least. He goes up that ladder. And we're just watching. There's nothing else to do except watch. And watch the guy go all the way to the top of the ladder. And he's fiddling around with some of those lighting cans. Pointing this one. And you know. And down he comes down the ladder. And I'm, I'm watching him. Because you always watch the moving object. He's coming down the ladder. Down the ladder. And actually, I, let me back up. Doc's guitar was not on a stand. It was laying flat in the case with the lid open. And the dude comes down. He gets to the, he's got one more step to hit the ground. And he stands right in Doc's guitar. Just crush right through the face of that guitar. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I think maybe Jack um, Jack Lawrence was there. Jack came out and uh, surveyed the situation. And luckily they had a spare. And uh, anyway, I'd have hated to have been that guy. I would have really hated to have been that guy. Come down that ladder and step on Doc's guitar. <laughs> and it, it busted it up pretty bad. I mean, I could go on and on and on. So even people like Doc Watson make mistakes as to where they leave their instrument, you know. Um, I'm going to save this story for the end, but let me tell you a little a, a little tale about our banjo player. This is in Cedar Hill and our banjo player, Jim Duck Adkins. He had a nice old, I think it was a TB3, 1930s-ish Gibson TB3 with a repro neck on it. Anyway, we're playing this backyard gig and these the homeowners have put a little stage out there for us. And really the stage is a six inch high platform made out of like two by sixes with a couple of sheets of plywood nailed on it. You know, I don't know why people do that. And, you know, we were elevated a whole six inches, but this thing was wobbly. I, I noticed as it was like two, four by eights, you know, these little platforms. But with five guys on it moving around, you could feel that plywood flexing and, you know, it was weird. It was like playing on a ship. It was just creepy playing on that, on that little platform. But that's where we were supposed to play, so we played there. So during the first break, Jimmy habitually in those days carried one of those little cheap instrument stands, little chrome-plated banjo stand, you know, or guitar stand or whatever it was. Little cheap fold-up thing and... He would always, you know, put his case somewhere else and stand that thing up on the stage and during the breaks, put his instrument in there. I didn't trust those things. Well, on that really bouncy stage and that flimsy instrument stand and a really heavy banjo, that thing is sitting there and 
Jimmy walked in front of it, and that was enough. That was all it took to make that thing, that banjo tipped over face for, face first, bam, slammed against the stage and broke the neck completely off at the heel. I mean, he just snapped that thing right off. I might have been the peg head. Anyway, peg head hit the ground, blam, just snapped it off. And that was during a break. And our fiddle player was not there at the time. He was standing over in the food line or something. He wasn't there when it fell over and broke. And I said, hey, Jimmy, once, once the shock of the broken banjo <laughs> went away, I said, Jimmy, what, watch this. And I just kind of stuck the peg head back together and put it back up on the stand. I said, when Jeff comes back, just keep waiting until he stands near that thing and then kick it over and we'll make him think that he broke it. <laughs> and, and we did that and he he really did think that he broke that banjo and i think you know maybe that uh story is a case of one of those you have a death wish for your own instrument i think you know it does seem like jimmy was all that broke up over his <laughs> destroyed banjo because maybe he had his sights set on a different banjo i don't know and i'm not sure how we got through the rest of that gig maybe jimmy had another banjo i don't remember but we did get through the gig, and eventually, uh, before the end of the night, we spilled the beans and told Jeff that uh, that we tricked him, that he really didn't break it, that Jimmy broke his own banjo. Anyway, I think it's interesting to, to note that I was the repair guy in those days. This was before Bob McIsaac had gone off the luthier school and had gone to work for um, Atlanta Guitar Works and whatever. This was before that, and so I was the guy that repaired stuff. So the broken peg head, I remember taking that banjo home and gluing it all back together and bringing it back to Je uh, Jimmy, and he played it for several months. And Dad coming if he didn't put it on the same stand again, and it got knocked over and broken a second time, this time at the heel. It, well, the first time was the peg head, and the second time was the heel. Same stand. I said, Doc... I think it's time you throw away that banjo stand. Anyway, <laughs> I can go on and on with these stories. Let me tell you one about this this idiot that I know. This guy goes to a backyard bluegrass picking session. It was some guys from the band Woe Nelly. And um, the dude was invited to go there and brought his banjo. And they were all picking on the picking on the back, uh, behind the house, on the back porch. And, you know, food was getting served, and, uh, you know, the banjo player took his banjo, and instead of carefully putting it in a case somewhere, he leaned it up on a rocking chair, standing upright. No, no. He had it laying like the bottom of the banjo was where you, where your your butt would sit in the chair, and the neck of the banjo was laying on the arm of the chair, so it was sort of sideways. Just rested it in a rocking chair, and then off he went to you know get a plate of barbecue and a beer or something. Well, in a minute, it sounded like a twenty-two rifle shot going off. Just bam. I rushed out to see, you know, who had been shot or whatever. And there in front of me is this banjo 
laying on the concrete of this patio. Just laying there. And the neck was kind of hanging up in the chair. Somebody had brushed up against the banjo, you know, against that rocking chair, and it had tipped, and that heavy 12 or whatever pound banjo resonator slid out the back and bam, hit the concrete. The reason I remember this so clearly is because I was that idiot who laid my banjo on a rocking chair. I mean, you're asking for it when you lay your banjo on a, uh, on a solid, like a, you know, I mean, like a lazy, no, not a lazy boy, but I mean, a really solid chair. You're asking for it, but for God's sake, don't put your banjo on a rocking chair, but that's what I did. Luckily the banjo damage was minor where the, where the resonator hit the concrete. It kind of split a little bit, split the resonator a little bit and kind of crunched the wood a little bit. But I repaired it, and I still play that banjo. You can see that banjo in all of my Clawhammer videos where I have the resonator off and that. But look, I was that idiot. So, I, you know, we all do things like this, but I think it's a good idea to try to avoid doing things like that. I saw a guy one time we were playing. There was a place called uh, Julian's Tavern, and they had a, a bluegrass jam session on Monday nights. It also was over there uh, east of Decatur. This is going way back into the 70s and early 80s. I, I arrived one day, had my banjo with me back then, for the jam, and I come in the place, and it's everybody's just, nobody's talking. Everybody's standing around all glum looking. I'm like, what? What's going on? I thought maybe somebody had died, like the owner of the place had died or something. I, I didn't know what was going on. Nobody's talking. Nobody's talking. And a friend of mine who I knew came in and we started, you know, talking a little bit. And in a while I said, this is weird. Uh, it's, it's something's going on here. They're not picking. Everybody's just standing around. Well, it turns out that one of the guitar players had this nice old vintage Martin guitar. And he had leaned it up against a bar stool at the bar. I mean, that's pretty dumb. Don't lean your vintage Martin against a bar stool in a bar. I mean, you're really asking for it. Anyway, he was asking for it and he got it. Somebody knocked it over and broke the neck off that guitar. And it was as if someone had died. There's a, it's the same, uh, you know, emotional thing that you see at funerals and wakes and things like that when a good instrument bites the dust it's it's a lot similar and they never did get started picking they were so distraught over the destruction of this nice old guitar that nobody felt like picking and so i remember going home never did play that particular time it was weird there is a you do develop relationships with your instrument and uh, if you lose one if it's stolen or destroyed it is almost like a death in the family. In some cases, I think people are closer to their instruments than they are to sometimes other people. I know I care about some of my instruments more than I care about some people. You know, I'm not saying all people. Anyway, my chair is squeaking so much today. I hope that that's not annoying you as much as it's annoying me. 
Anyway, the, the, the principle of this is pretty simple. If you have an instrument you care about, don't put it in a rocking chair. Don't leave it on a couch where somebody can sit on it. Don't trust that thing on, you know, don't trust a stand, especially, you know, a lot of times people will put their instrument in a stand and it looks really cool. And there's that strap hanging out there. And the strap is almost like a trip wire. It's, it's hanging out there just waiting for a foot to go through that strap and yank that instrument off of that stand. You know, it only takes 10 seconds to put your instrument in the case. And I, I, I believe that like during a break, take the time, put your instrument in the case, close the lid, you know, snap the latches. Let me, let me, and let me tell you a little story. One night Pony Express is in my basement studio. There's 13 steps down to the, uh, from the middle floor down to the basement where the studio is and where we were rehearsing to record this album. And we might've been doing some tracks that night and so on. My friend, Buddy Ashmore is down there with his Martin with the blue fiberglass case. He puts his, we're done, and he puts his guitar in the case and closes the lid. And he's talking to us about a, a festival coming up, and he's got this festival flyer in his hand, and he's showing it to all the guys, trying to find out if, you know, we'd like to go. And he, you know, he wants us to go to this festival, and we'd be a, we'd have a good old time, and blah, blah, blah. And we everybody was talking about other stuff. We weren't paying a bit of attention to Buddy. I kind of hurt his feelings, I think. Well, I think after a few minutes of trying to get our attention, showing us this festival flyer, and he just, it hacked him off, and he just folded that thing in half, and then he folded it in half again real neatly, folded it in half again, he stuck that flyer in his back pocket. Kind of in a huff, he reached down, grabbed his Martin, up them stairs he went. About halfway up, the case opened, and the guitar slid back down. He forgot to latch the latches. I, I take responsibility for that because I should have paid attention to Buddy when he was saying, now, boys, we've been spending weeks down here in this basement, you know, working on this album. We need to get out and pick some. And he was right about that. But uh, also, I think it was a lesson to him to, to don't get in a hurry and double check that those latches are actually closed. Ashmore will tell you that that is a true story. Anyway, if you close the case, latch it. And I'll even go one step further. When I, after witnessing so many of these things and me doing some pretty dumb things with instruments over the years, I would even go one step further. I will take, and this is when I was playing mandolin, put my mandolin in the case, close the lid, latch it, and I was using a hard shell case. I would even stand it up in the position as if you were going to carry it. So vertically. And some people might say, well, that's less stable than leaving it flat. But one time I was at a gig, I put my mandolin in the case and I latched it and I left it flat on the ground, on the stage. And I went off to get something to eat and, you know, came wandering back there. And I saw this little girl, probably about four years old, tap dancing on top of my case. 
because they were playing some music and she had hopped up on the stage and I guess my mandolin case looked like a little stage to her and she was just a buck dancing like a, I don't know what she was doing. She was dancing on top of my case. Thank goodness that, you know, half inch or three eighths inch plywood withstood the onslaught of a four-year-old, but it ain't going to handle a 350 pound roadie. So I don't care what your case is made of. There is somebody out there who can defeat that case. So close the case, latch the case, maybe stand it upright. Cause then it's not a temptation for little kids to dance on top of your case. I'm just saying, take extra care of your instrument, unless you hate your instrument. And I, I think sometimes people do hate their instrument and they wish it would be destroyed. <laughs> And for God's sake, don't use those instrument stands. I always used to tell my students, look, would you use an instrument stand? And would you take your fine instrument and stand it out in the middle of a cattle feedlot? No, of course they wouldn't, because the cattle are going to knock it over and trample it. The same thing will happen with people. It just might take a little longer. But if you like these kind of horror stories, you know, do whatever you want to with your own instrument. But let me tell you another little, little tale. One night, this is in the mid-80s, our band Cedar Hill was playing for a backyard party for a bunch of real estate people. And in the book, I put people in quotes. Because <laughs> I'm not sure these were people people. These were real estate people and they were partying. And they had hired us, and they, we were set up pretty near the swimming pool in the backyard of this guy's house. Well, the gig was winding down, and this party had gone to the point where there were people getting thrown in the pool. You know, people wearing their green slacks and their, their uh, I don't know, the little penny loafers with no socks. And, you know, like these real estate people were getting a little drunk, and they were throwing people in the pool and stuff. And we decided, look. Let's get out of here. Duck went to retrieve the check, and we started hauling out the PA. And typically our procedure was get the PA out first, leave our instruments at the stage area, and we would cart the instruments out last because usually at that point you're going to your car. So we'd load the PA stuff and then go back and get our instruments. So we had everything all, all loaded up, and I walked back through this madhouse of real estate people picked up my mandolin and I'm walking towards my car. I have to walk along the side of the pool and Fred's there uh, picking up his bass, and we're the last two guys out of the band. And as I'm walking along there, I got my mandolin in my right hand and somebody, I don't know who it was, somebody, grabbed me and started shoving me like they're going to throw me in the pool. And I had no time to think whatsoever. All I could, the only thing I thought was no, not, not the flat iron. And I swung my right arm and threw my mandolin to Fred who had his base in his hands. Fred reached out and caught that mandolin in his arms. I threw it about four feet. And the next thing I knew I was in the pool, fully clothed, my wallet soaked. I'm drenched. I'm swimming towards the ladder and I'm mad. I don't know who did this. 
I didn't really know these people, you know. I, quite honestly, I don't want to know those people. Who would, who would throw one of the musicians into the pool with his instrument in his hand? Now, in all fairness, they probably didn't realize that I had it in my hand. You know, who knows? I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. And when I came out of that pool, I literally was steaming. My clothes were steaming. I think the you know air temperature had dropped a little bit. I remember coming up that ladder and seeing just steam coming off of me. And I didn't know what happened. I didn't know Fred caught my mandolin. But he did. He caught it. He saved that thing. And I remember Bob and Fred both grabbing me and <laughs> restraining me because I was going to go back. I was go I was ready to fight. Anyway, they calmed me down and cooled me down because I was literally steaming mad. And we, you know, in a minute or two, I calmed down. And you know, we cashed the check and got our. 150 bucks a piece or whatever it was out of the deal. But they almost destroyed my Flatiron 1985 Flatiron F5 artist. And it was just, um, you know, the intervention of the gods of instruments that saved that mandolin. I'll tell you another one. Then, I, then I'm going to pull the plug because I know this is getting ridiculously long and I could go on all night with these stories. I'm going to skip the one about how I I nearly destroyed my own mail. And I'm going to skip that one, maybe come back to that one day. If I don't ever do it, just remind me of the night I nearly broke my leg and nearly destroyed my mandolin. I'll come back to that. Or, better yet, go buy the mandolin handbook and download it, and you can read it. It's on page 64. Anyway, the last story I want to tell you is probably about 1985. Cedar Hill had a gig playing a for a, a Delta Pilots retirement party on a Friday night. You know, pilots retired and they flew up um, huge, you know, like cases and cases of raw oysters. You know, when you're a pilot, you get favors from, anyway, somehow or another, they had shipped up to this hotel near the airport in Atlanta they had hired us to play, and they had all these oysters. I mean, they had enough oysters for 500 people, and there was probably 75 there. So at the end of that gig on Friday night, when they were paying us and we were packing up, he said, boys, you guys want some oysters? Yeah, because the next day we were taken off to a bluegrass festival. We were booked on Saturday at the Hamby Mountain Bluegrass Festival. Yeah, let's, let's, yeah, we'll take a, so it gives us this cooler and this cooler is humongous. It's probably five feet long. It's this gigantic styrofoam container full of ice and oysters. We're like, we're going to take them up to Hamby Mountain tomorrow. So we carted out this gigantic cooler full of oysters. And the next morning we all got together and packed up and went to the Hamby Mountain Bluegrass Festival. And we hung around all day long, eating oysters. We played up probably two sets up there. And we had to get back. A couple of guys had some stuff going on on Sunday morning, so we couldn't stay up there. And by midnight, we had, we had made more friends with those oysters. That thing, everybody at Hamby Mountain that year was eating oysters. 
I don't know how many oysters I ate. Had to be three or four dozen at least. We had the best time up there, but when we finished our final set, it was pretty late and it was dark. And we were traveling at that time in a station wagon. And we would just cram everything into that station wagon. You know, five guys and five instruments. But, of course, the bass fiddle wouldn't fit. So the bass fiddle had to ride on the roof. So Fred's old bass fiddle, some kind of old European three-quarter bass, uh, went in its black bag and we would put a card table up there, our record table. The card table went on top, then the bass went on top, and we had all these bungee cords and stuff that held it all on. And we hop in the car about midnight and are heading back down towards Atlanta. This was up, um, I, I forget where Hamby Mountain was, but it was an hour, hour and a half north of Atlanta. Or north, I think it was northeast of Atlanta. Anyway, we're coming back. We're tired. We, we had a good old time at the festival. And we're probably coming down, probably I-85. Though I'm not positive of the road. But we're heading back towards Atlanta. Driving. And we kind of hear this thump sound. Kind of a weird sound. And everybody all at once knew what happened. Air had gotten under that card table. And lifted. And broke those bungees. And that bass fiddle flew off the roof of that car. In pitch darkness. Coming down this highway. Whatever highway it was. We immediately pull over to the side. We're, we're in the emergency lane. We're just about to hop out when all of a sudden you hear kaboom. A guy in a pickup truck hit the bass fiddle. I think the bass might have survived. I mean, you know, surely it would have needed repairing, but it might have survived. But this dude following us in a pickup truck, he hit it. He didn't even, he never saw it. He pulled over. He thought he'd hit a person or something. He didn't know what he hit. And it was in this black vinyl zipper bag. So it was almost like the way you could blow up a, a paper bag and pop it. That was the sound that thing made, just an explosive sound. And he was like, oh, man, I didn't even see that thing. I didn't, I didn't know. He, he didn't know what he hit. He said, we're telling him, that's a bass fiddle. You ran over a bass fiddle. This thing exploded. The uh, the vinyl bag was in shreds. It looked like, you know, an explosion off, you know, something Wiley E. Coyote would do. And we're in the street just picking up pieces and parts of this base. I remember I remember picking up the peg head, which was sort of intact. It had all the tuners on it. Somebody else got the end pin and various chunks of wood. And we just kind of gathered up some scraps put him in the car and got back in the car and continued on back towards home. And it was the exact same thing that happened in that bar at Julian's Tavern, where it was like there'd been a death in the family. Nobody was talking at all. It was just dead silence. Oh man. I mean, that's bad. <laughs> that's a bad thing that just happened. Well, I owned a bass fiddle which I wasn't using at the time. So I loaned it to Fred and, you know, Cedar Hill continued on. And eventually uh, Bob talked me out of that base and bought it and gave it to Fred. So he ended up with my old uh, 49K. 
and played that thing for years and years and years. Anyway, you know, once again, never trust a strap. I think I started this episode with that. And let's add to that, don't trust bungee cords. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed these horror stories. They're so much fun to me. They're a lot more fun to think back on than to live in the moment. But try to protect your instrument. Oh, and hey, one more thing. I forgot to plug the website. Don't forget, if you want some free lessons, go to bradleylaird.com. And when you get sick of all the free stuff, you could also, you know, take a look at some of the products that I offer, including the mandolin handbook, a whole series of mandolin instruction videos. I've, I've got banjo instructional material, both in bluegrass and claw hammer, blah, blah, blah. You can find all that stuff at bradleylaird.com. Bye.